Hey everyone, you're listening to Tobin Tuesdays, brought to you by the Manitoban here on 101.5 UMFM. Today is October 2nd, 2018. I'm your host, Joe Gonzalez, and we are very excited to be offering you listeners uh, a new medium for the Manitoban here on 101.5 UMFM. Uh, we have a lot going on in this episode, so we'll get right to it. On the docket today, uh, we have a few interviews, uh, a couple from the $15 in Fairness rally here in Winnipeg that happened on September 24th. We have an interview with Professor Kevin Fraser from the, the uh, Biological Sciences. He is studying avian behavior and he wants to talk about a awareness program being undertaken here at the University of Manitoba. Uh, we also have an interview with head coach of the men's Bison's hockey team, Mike Sarant, about three new recruits coming into the program. And we also have uh, an interview with Canadian director Nadine Pekaniza, who will be talking about her film, The Invisible Heart. So let's get right to it. You may have seen in the news over the last few months about campaigns happening in the United States and as well recently in Ontario about the fight for a fair minimum wage. What constitutes a fair wage? Simply a minimum wage worker being paid enough so that they may meet their basic living needs. Now, Ontario was close to making this a reality. They proposed $15 an hour for a minimum wage worker. Now, that proposal was there until the election of Doug Ford, who instead proposed erasing the provincial income tax for minimum wage workers. That aside, it seems, though, that these campaigns occurring in North America have inspired others to begin their own movements in their respective cities. On September 24th, the Fight for $15 in Fairness Manitoba campaign kicked off with a rally in downtown Winnipeg. Our news and magic editor, Malak Abbas, went down there to speak with Emily Leadham, one of the campaign's organizers, and Brendan Galley, Vice President Internal Affairs of the University of Winnipeg Students Association, who spoke at the gathering. Among other things, they discussed why students should get involved with the campaign and how. There have been a few different events and, and campaigns in Manitoba around the minimum wage at this time. This has been an issue a lot of people have been pushing around. Uh, like the Manitoba Federation of Labor, the Canadian Federation of Students, um, PSAC, things like that. Um, this is kind of building on the groundwork that has already been laid because we know that there's a lot of popular support. Uh, right now what we want to do is engage low-wage workers in the struggle. We want to engage people who this issue actually affects. Um, so this is our kind of launch and after this we're going to be having um, volunteer training sessions and hopefully events that will be very community-based um, to get people involved. We have several different approaches that we're hoping to take. Um, marches and community events like this are good because it shows visibility of the issue. It, it lets people know that there are people who care about this um, and it allows you know, everyday people to sort of get involved in an accessible way. Um, but we also want to work with unions, uh, people in the labor movement, to put $15 into their collective agreements, to put um, these other issues that we're fighting for uh, into their collective agreements so we will be challenging employers directly. Um, so it's not just about asking the government to change employment standards, it's about um, getting employers to change their employment practices as well. So, yeah, there's a few different uh, tactics that we're hoping to take. Um, I will say also that we are very much inspired by the um, Fight for 15 and Fairness campaign in Ontario, uh, which has been very much about you know community organizing, uh, training organizers as well, people who wouldn't normally identify as maybe activists or labor organizers um, to really provide people with those skills to empower them to fight to improve their own conditions. So that's a main part of this campaign as well is. Um, really providing those uh, organizing skills for people. And we've put together a petition and our campaign is kind of 
centered around that petition right now. Um, so it'll be about getting community groups to endorse the petition, to share it, you know, at church, at their, you know, knitting groups, wherever they are, uh, to bring this issue um, into their communities. So that's another aspect of the campaign. Right now, uh, I would recommend coming to one of our volunteer training sessions, which is October 3rd and October 16th at the Workers Organizing Resource Center. Um, what we're also hoping is that students will be able to uh, come to us and we can help them set up a community chapter. Um, so it'd be great to have students organizing around this issue at the University of Winnipeg, at the University of Manitoba, um, and organizing their own events to engage students. Uh, so I've been actually thinking about that question since I've started university and the answer to that has changed uh, compared to when I began to now. Uh, I think we're in a position with the government and culturally where post-secondary education is nothing like we've seen it before. Um, where things like the Advanced Education Act that passed last year uh, allowed for institutions to increase so that students are paying more out of their pocket. They reduced services like the uh, tuition rebate that allowed for money back in students' pockets after they graduate if they stay in the province and work. They're increasing ancillary fees and costs to like lab equipment and things like that. So students are in a very like precarious situation where they're needing to find income elsewhere just to be in school. Uh, so that's I think the student perspective. But also in terms of the institutions themselves and administrations, they're losing out on funding as well from the province. So I think they're pursuing ways uh, to bring revenue into their to their operations that we haven't seen in the past as well. Like you're seeing a higher recruitment rate for international students that puts money in their pockets. You're seeing uh, recruiters around Manitoba trying to diversify the student body just to get more people inside those classrooms. And what that means is they're looking at students who wouldn't regularly attend uh, that are actually suffering uh, or having, I guess, have a different sort of life than your standard student that we've seen maybe, you know, prior to 2010. We're seeing low-income youth coming into post-secondary education and sort of being set up to fail. So I think labor issues are directly tied to education issues, especially when you... Uh, post-secondary education, post -secondary, uh, education is a breeding ground for leaders and future workers in this province. So if they're not being set up for success, this province is failing itself for its future. For those of you that are walking around the Fort Garry campus here at the University of Manitoba, you may have noticed some decorations on some windows, especially on the side of the Biological Sciences Building that's in front of the greenhouse and near arms. The reason for this decoration on the windows is the result of a project being undertaken between the researchers and student volunteers from the Avian Behavior and Conservation Lab, the Natural Resources Institute, and the U of M Science, Technology, Engineering, Art, and Math program. Their purpose is simple. Research is showing that, during the migratory periods for birds, casualties are the result of birds crashing into the windows located on low-rise buildings, such as homes and a few of the buildings that we see on campus. You and I occupy a lot of these buildings, and so, while it was originally believed that buildings such as skyscrapers were doing most of the damage, research has shown otherwise. Given this, it looks as though we have the power to help our avian friends out. This includes, among other things, decorating the exterior of windows so as to help birds avoid collision. Our news reporter, David Zarangi, spoke with Kevin Fraser, assistant professor of biology here at the University of Manitoba specializing in avian behavior. He's a co-lead on the campaign to bring awareness to this problem and to help realize a potential solution. And this is just something we're doing 
on campus recognizing that it's a it's a big issue probably is a has a big impact on populations and this is our small chance to do something about it at buildings that we can look at um, and also use them as a sort of an outreach and education tool as well so that we can hopefully have a bigger reach. Uh, we've been doing it uh, for I think uh, this is our third week so migration can start as early as late July um, but it sort of starts to peak yeah. as the days get cooler in August yeah. into September so um, and then students are away so when, when everybody got back we, we started in September to re reinstate our surveys so we were doing them in spring as well. Part of the idea is to get um, a few years or at least a few seasons of data to, mm. to compare but that, that's part of it. We might inherently expect um, a higher number of kills in fall because there are more birds because you have not only the, the adults that migrated north to breed but you have all of the young. generation. Yep and probably only about half of those young are going to survive to come back the next year so that number of young is huge right now. We're not that far from a lot of them were produced in the Boreal Forest for example. Hmm. So they're just starting their migration as they're hitting Winnipeg, um, but only half of those young birds are going to come back to spring. So right. we would expect lower numbers generally just because of the lower number of birds that are migrating. But, yeah. Yeah. but it, there's some neat estimates lately. We might overall expect about 4 billion birds to be passing through North America on fall migration. So that's wow. a lot of individuals. The birds that we're tracking um, are, are breeding nearby, so their roots and their flights are Within, within Winnipeg. Right. Um, also some birds that we've tracked from further west, so sort of central Alberta, mm. um, migrate east first and, and could overlap too with Winnipeg before they head south. And we think a lot of birds um, breeding in the northwestern boreal forest are traveling east before heading south okay. and maybe following the prairie parkland habitat, which includes sort of the edge of Winnipeg here and not flying over the prairies. So we end up sort of funneling migrants between the edge of the prairie and the Great Lakes. Yeah. And this ends up being, I think, a huge migratory flyway for a lot of songbirds that are coming from the north to the northwest. So, um, which you can hear when you go to, you can hear how many are flying over at night with those flight calls. Right. Right. So, yeah. Um, so yeah, so there's a, f a few years ago, um, there was um, a paper published in a Canadian journal, Avian Conservation and Ecology, that sort of summed up the window kill issue for Canada. Mm. Um, so they used um, all sorts of different different data. It was a meta-analysis where they um, used sort of window kill surveys like what we're doing, but tried to scale it up to, to measure the impact of windows overall in Canada on an um, annual basis. So they looked at the impact of houses and low-rise buildings and sort of taller sort of office tower type buildings. Right. And then sort of counted up how many birds they think are killed a year by those windows combined. Right. And the, the number is staggering. It's 25 million yes. birds, as you may have heard. That's... Um, but the real surprising thing about that was that we had thought that sort of downtown office towers were the biggest threat because mm. they have lights on often at night. The birds are drawn into the lights because they're using light to navigate. Mm. And then they collide with the buildings or fall to the street and are, are injured that way. Um, so And, the, and it's true that, that bigger buildings, uh, on average, do kill more birds than smaller buildings and, and houses, yeah. but there are many more houses and many more low-rise buildings Absolutely. like our ones on campus. So when yes. you sum up all of those together, about 24.8 million of that 25 million are birds that are killed by houses and low-rise buildings. Wow. So, so the high-rise buildings have a big impact on a per-building basis, but hmm. there aren't as many of them. So it's the sum of the others that makes such a big hmm. impact. Yeah. So there's some positive, positives and negatives of that. The, the positive is that, well, 
it's not just that we have to convince companies that own these office towers to turn off the lights at night. If, if the, most birds are killed by our houses and low-rise buildings we work in, then hey, we, we have more power to do something to yes. mitigate that. So part of what we're doing on campus is to look at these low-rise buildings here, try to make a difference here, but then also try to share these ideas about how to mitigate windows yes. with people that are living in houses all around, which are also having an impact. So yes. kind of the goal. Yeah. From a, a scientific perspective, we, we're studying bird populations and factors that influence um, population dynamics, mm -hmm. and avian window kill seems to be a really big one. So when we're we're looking at our, our population studies and thinking of that in terms of, of conservation, we know that windows are must be a, a big threat. Yes. So um, so part of it is under certain sort of understanding that that background context, and then and then sort of extending it to some real practical conservation measures. Yes. And there have been there's been quite a bit of research to figure out exactly what you need to do to a window to it so that birds don't collide with it. Um, most of it is having something on the outside to break up that reflection that right. we were talking about. So often people are putting um, predator hawk silhouettes on the inside, which mm. probably help a little bit. Okay. Um, if they're on the outside, it would be even better. But the best strategy is to have something on the window about every 10 centimeters. Every that, 10 centimeters. Every 10 centimeters that, that's breaking up that reflection in a, in, in a bigger way so that it looks like a solid, a solid object that it is. Mm. Um, so yeah, so, so there's a, been a whole lot of um, biological research yeah. on, uh, first of all, what kinds of windows and what kinds of situations lead to kills, yeah. and then with that big summary paper. So as, as a, a lab that's working on avian um, conservation and behavior, it makes sense that we're going to have to take this opportunity to get, get involved and yeah. try, to, try to mitigate the threat, at least on campus. Yeah. We're so collaborating true. with... Um, uh, Nicola Copers, Dr. Nicola Copers, Copers lab in uh, the Natural Resources Institute. Right. Um, so that's one of the other uh, big sort of bird research groups hmm. on campus. Um, and we're collaborating with Sima Gold, um, in Faculty of Science and Faculty of Science in general. Right. Um, so they helped with the, with the design part and, and, and really the, the planning and everything from the beginning to the end. Hmm. Um, so we've had lots of Faculty of Science support. Uh, through SEMA's team, hmm. um, and then the physical plant too has been really supportive of us trying to make the campus more bird friendly. So they, right. they with permissions and reviewing um, our ideas and, and, and sort of giving us the go ahead to do this on the on the buildings on campus as well. Right. So this is sort of the, the beginning of a of a two part plan where we, I mean, those treatments we put up are probably preventing strikes right now. Hmm. Um, but we need to do a lot more, and they need to be in a lot more places. So part of the, the goal of the surveys is to figure out where their hotspots are, mm -hmm. so that then when we go to do more permanent treatments in future, we can go right to where the windows are that are having the biggest impact. So that'll happen a little further down the road, but for now, those windows are doing their job. <laughs> and then we've got, uh, sort of as, a, as an outreach education tool, it's doing its job that way. Right. I think that it, it, the way, we mostly have, um, whether it's writing or the feather stickers, the decals, we mostly have every 10 centimeters covered and with the drawings too right. that we did on Wallace. So right. we mostly have sort of followed those, um, those same uh, guidelines for other stickers. But you could do it with um, little, there's one product called Fe Feather Friendly, which is like these little kind of uh, circular dots with the whole um, panel that you stick across the whole window, I think. That's a company mm -hmm. that provides that. Okay. Um, and those are, are mostly transparent from the inside, so it doesn't in interfere with view from inside. Okay. Um, but they're on the outside and they do break up uh, that reflection. And those are just spaced every 10 centimeters mm -hmm. and are less 
bold and, and as we have with the writing. Right. Um, so I think the writing would work just as well because of, of how it's structured and there aren't too many gaps in there. Um, but a more permanent treatment might have something that's more like a, a grid pattern. Yeah. It, there's, a, there's a lot of um, student um, interest and excitement about it, so there are lots of student volunteers that are putting in lots and lots of hours for right. surveys and for the work, so there's that excitement. <laughs> um, there's a lot of excitement in the faculty of science about doing something as well, and I think with uh, physical plants as well, and, and, and sort of making this a longer-term thing. So it seems like we've got momentum now. We did this in spring a little bit too. The drawings that are down here, we did right. the science rendezvous. Right. Um, so there were kids drawing, learning about that issue, and drawing on the windows to, to prevent strikes then too. Um, so I think that as long as we, we, we keep it going, I think, and, and collect some uh, data that show where the hot spots are, then that would lead us into the next step. Um, Part of that would be applying for, for funding to to do the treatments where we need to do them. So I think that that, that part going for funding can happen while we're, while we're waiting for more data yeah. on actually where we should best put them. Because we can't put them everywhere. There's so many windows on campus, it would be impossible to treat every window. So yeah. I think focusing on the hotspot areas, at least in the Faculty of Science buildings and the NRI around here kind of for now is where we've been doing our surveys. But um, if other groups wanted to take it on as a university-wide initiative mm -hmm. and if other groups wanted to help with surveys and do this on every building and campus that would be pretty amazing yeah last week was the winnipeg premiere of the film the invisible heart directed by canadian director nadine pekaniza the invisible heart is the world's first documentary about social impact bonds and the wall streetification of social services it's timely because the government of manitoba recently announced plans for its first social impact bond or sib in the area of child welfare sibs are bonds that finance social services with private money since launching in the uk in 2010 sibs are a relatively new financial innovation and one of the fastest growing in modern history there are 108 sibs in 24 countries four in Canada, and 70-plus in development around the world. Filmed in Canada, the U.S., and U.K. over three years, The Invisible Heart follows the unlikely personalities, venture capitalists, philanthropists, labor leaders, economists, social workers, and end-users, banding together to combat social inequality. It tracks the birth of SIBs, examining SIBs in Canada and the U.S. from design to implementation, and looks at what happens when capitalism and charity intersect. Our arts and culture editor, Braden Pergus sat down with Nadine Pekaniza for an interview to discuss the film. But basically, The Invisible Heart is about a new financing model for social services that uses private investment to pay for social services up front, and then if those social services achieve certain outcomes, the government, usually it's the government, repays the investor. And so... Social impact bond, um, sorry, the invisible heart takes a, a critical look at social impact bonds to see whether they can actually deliver on some of the promises um, that have been spoken about over the last eight years that they've been around. So yeah, and we do that by, actually we followed over the course of three years uh, two different social impact bonds one in Canada, one in the United States, and they're in different phases of their life. So the one in Canada was about the development of the social impact bond for chronically homeless. And the one in the United States was in Chicago, and it was already in the middle of implementation. So it was in the second year of a three-year um, uh, support services for uh, pre-kindergarten. Basically, the idea originated in the United Kingdom, um, and one of the primary uh, creators was Sir Ronald Cohen. 
And the idea behind social impact bonds originally was to improve outcomes for vulnerable people. So, you know, society's been dealing with um, problems of homelessness and poverty and high dropout rates and unemployment, um, children entering the child welfare system for many, many years and not necessarily achieving better results. And so the idea is that if you bring private investment into the delivery of these social services, there then becomes a connection between the investor's repayment and the success of the program. So it's supposed to reduce costs because these programs are preventative in nature and it's also supposed to um, be more rigorous in the implementation, the delivery of the service, and in measuring the results because there is now a profit um, tied to the outcome of the program. Well, I've been making films about social issues for close to 20 years now, and I've often been filming people who are in these very precarious situations. So um, children who entered the foster care system, uh, adults who are dealing with addiction issues, homelessness, um, physical abuse, um, in the case of women who've been in uh, violent relationships. And they've been accessing services that haven't delivered um, the results that were needed. So often the services come too little and too late. Um, so the idea of focusing on prevention was something that really um, interested me, appealed to me. And then the idea that you could somehow improve these outcomes because I think too often our social uh, programs are failing. Um, so I wanted to explore the promise of social impact bonds that was being presented. Well, I think what the film shows is that there are a number of potential problems with the implementation of social impact bonds because you are bringing a profit motive into the delivery of services. And um, it's about attaching a profit or attaching a financial reward to the outcome of a program can have a negative impact on the delivery of the service, and not just the delivery, but the whole design of the service. Because it makes nonprofit nonprofits are now reliant on funding based on their performance, and so we've seen that in a number of situations in the United States, for example, where school funding is dependent on the uh, performance, the academic performance of the students, and what we've seen is that. Teachers, whether intentionally or subconsciously, ensure that the marks are where they need to be in order for the funding to continue. There can be a conflict of, of interest. And oftentimes when these um, social impact bonds are being designed, so when they're deciding what the success metrics are going to be, you know, what the targets will be, mm -hmm. who will be eligible for the program, what the return on investment will be when they're deciding these things, the individuals who will rely on the programs to the beneficiaries are not involved in the conversation. Um, and if you watch the film, you'll see there are examples where what is 
chosen as a success metric is not necessarily reflective of real uh, progress for the people in the program. It doesn't necessarily improve the quality of their life in the immediate or long term. Yeah, the government does play a very crucial role in that they pay the investors. So they're commissioning the, the social impact bond, um, and they're the ones who are responsible for paying if the success metrics are, are met. So they do have a very central role. And in the research that I did, it was, um, it was typically the government and then many, because this is now being used in 24 different countries, so it was the government in those countries that was most enthusiastic or about it. This year, the Bison men's hockey team added a slew of new recruits to their program. Among these rookies are three that are hoping their experience in the Western Hockey League will help them succeed here at the U Sports level of hockey. Our sports editor, Jason Pajak, sat down with the head coach of the men's hockey team, Mike Sarant, to talk about Tyler Brown, Devin Skaleski, and Mackenzie Dwyer, three Manitoba boys that Sarant hopes will be a part of the foundation for the future. It, it starts with that uh, <clears throat> our recruits are good people, and Tyler Brown is, is a really good person, and he's very serious about the academics here. Uh, he's got a real strong hockey background playing in the Western Hockey League. He was part of the Regina Pats uh, when uh, they had that you know, very strong team uh, a few years ago, and uh, he finished off his career in Saskatoon. So we're, we're excited to have Tyler in our program. With him, it's more for the future because uh, he, he underwent surgery this summer, um, and I know he's working very hard at, at the recovery, at his recovery, but um, we may not have an opportunity to use him much this year, mm -hmm. uh, which is unfortunate, but we have three really good goalies in our program. We lose two of them. Uh, to graduation this year, Byron Spriggs and Dason Sedora. So if we're not able to use Tyler this year because he's still in, in rehabilitation, um, he'll be a, a real asset to us next year. To having depth of the goaltending position is, is really important, and we feel that uh, any one of those three players, uh, Byron Spriggs, Dason Sedora, Justin Pollock, could, could step in and, and uh, help us win games. Yeah, we're excited to have Devin. He had a, had a, a really good career in the Western Hockey League, uh, mostly with Everett, and then he finished with uh, Prince Albert and then came back and, and uh, had a, a really good season with the Winnipeg Blues. Having played in Everett under Coach Kevin Constantine, you know that, that Devin would have got uh, a real foundation on defensive play. Uh, Constantine, as a coach, really was uh, a stickler for, for strong defensive fundamentals and foundation. So you know that from coming from that background that Devin is going to be solid defensively, and we've seen that. Like he's, he's good in our zone. Although he's not a big man, he, he's very smart, he's a heady player uh, defensively, he, he gets himself in a, in a good position, he's very good with the stick, so he's been very good defensively for us. Um, but he has a lot of offensive upside. Like he's a quick skater, and I think where he excels is is leading the attack up ice. As as we're coming up the ice, he's really good at uh, at finding teammates to to advance the attack up the ice. Uh, plus, in the offensive zone, he's he makes really good plays. Um, so overall, he's he's a real complete player. He's smart. He he's a heady player and makes really good plays. You know, really solid defensively, and uh, he can score too. 
you know, all three of these guys are, are you, you can see how, while well, Tyler is, is rehabbing right now, but with Devin and, and, and Mackenzie, you can see how hard they're working uh, on the ice in practice and, and in the gym and, and really fitting into the culture uh, that we have with our, our Bison men's hockey program. Uh, Mackenzie's a, a, is a big defenseman who moves really well. Like he's really a good skater with uh, you know very good mobility. Um, he he sees the ice well. He can make plays. Uh, I like how he uh, you know, passes the puck with with a, a real you know snap and firmness. Um, and he can uh, and he's he's got a good shot. He can really let the puck go. So. You know he, he's he, he's got a good understanding of the game. He he uh, he's he's good defensively for us, but his upside is that he he's he's got good mobility. He can jump up in the play and he can make plays uh, offensively as well. And he's got and he's got uh, you know he he does have the capability to play with a with a with an edge and, and bring some physicality, which we expect him to do. And that should do it for today's episode of Tobin Tuesdays. Once again, the interviews you heard today were provided by Malak Abbas, David Zarangi, Jason Pajak, and Braden Purgis. The noises, the transition noises that you heard and the intro music at the top of the show were produced by Kenny Ingram. And of course, I'm your host, Joe Gonzalez. On behalf of the Manitoban, we thank you for listening, and we hope that you'll join us next week. See ya. See ya.